Thank you, Scott. All right, good morning. All right, we are uh, journeying our way through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Parkside. I'm glad you guys are here with us. Uh, it is our, uh, our habit, what we like to do is just walk through a book of the Bible, and so this is kind of what we do, and whatever the next passage is, next verses, we just deal with what's next. And so this is, if you're here today for the first time, this is kind of where we are in our study and kind of working our way through. Today's uh, title is uh, Jesus' Greater Than Doubt is our title. Let's pray. Father, I uh, pray that you would please help us as we study this passage. Uh, there's some heavy, um, weighty uh, verses here. There are things that are uh, convicting, and yet at the same time, God, we know that we all struggle with doubt in different ways, and I pray, God, that you would help us as we um, work through this study, as we think about uh, faith and clinging to you and what that looks like, uh, that, God, you would strengthen our faith, help us to fight the good fight of faith. God, it is a fight. It is a battle, and I pray, God, that you would strengthen us and help us to strengthen one another uh, in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you could, uh, you could summarize, <clears throat> oh, do you like that? <clears throat> Try that again, <clears throat> reverse. You could summarize, there we go. Um, you could summarize the entire story of the Bible uh, with one call from God, and that call is trust me, right? Trust me. It's a virtually every page of the Bible. God is saying to us, trust me, trust me. Uh, when you think about when he created the Garden of Eden, and he put people in it, and he said what? He said, don't, don't eat of this tree, right? Trust me, don't, don't eat of this tree. Satan's whole temptation to Adam and Eve was, don't trust God. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't know what's best for you. Trust me, right? That was the whole kind of argument and temptation. Of course, they, they fall, they sin. God boots them out of the garden, actually in love. It's not the end of the story. Because basically God tells Adam and Eve, trust me, I'm, I'm going to come rescue you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come get you. I'm going to send a redeemer to rescue you. The message, message to Noah was, trust me, right? Build a boat in the middle of a desert. It's never rained before. <laughs> trust me on this one. Just go build it. The message to Abraham, trust me, right? I'll lead you into a good land. Uh, trust me, and I'll use you to bless all the nations. The message to Abraham again came to him, right? It said, trust me, I'll, I'll give you a son. To which... Abraham did not trust him, right? Got impatient, slept with another woman with his wife's permission, by the way, but that's a whole other subject. Um, and and he, he failed to believe. God came to him again, right? It says, trust me. Uh, I know you're older. I know you're past baby-making stages here of life. And trust me, I'm going to give you a son anyway, right? You're 90 plus. I'm going to give you a son. Trust me on this one. To Moses, God said to trust me. Um, when he, when he sent him, to, is, sent him uh, to tell Israel about the message, remember from the burning bush situation and how he's going to deliver them from, from uh, Egypt. He then told him to trust me, uh, to relay this message of judgment to the most powerful person in the entire world. I want you to trust me as you go in there and you tell him what I, what I want you to tell him. God told the people of Israel, trust me in the wilderness. Trust me in the Red Sea. Trust me by the Jordan River. Trust me at Jericho. God's message to David was, trust me, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, it all was the same. Trust me, and what I'm telling you is true. Listen to what I'm telling you. His message to Mary in the New Testament was, trust me, you're going to have a baby, right? You're going to have a baby without ever, ever being married, without ever having sex, you're going to have a baby. His message to Joseph, right, was, trust me that your girl's not lying to you <laughs> when she says she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, right? Trust me on this one. This was all a big thing of trust. The call goes all the way to Jesus himself when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And the Father said to him, what, trust me, right? Jesus said, not my will, but 
your will be done. I, I do trust you. Right? There was a struggle of faith, the struggle there even in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told Peter, trust me. Paul, trust me. Throughout every century, down to this very morning today, God's echo to each of us, God's statement to all of us today is, just trust me. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you really trust him with every area of your life? Do you trust him with your future? Do you trust him with your children, with your grandchildren? Do you trust him with your spouse? Do you trust him with your job, your ministry, your illness? Do you trust him through all of those venues? That, that's always the echo of God throughout the scriptures, throughout all of our life, is for him telling us to trust him. Now, for some of you, you who have not come to Jesus yet, you don't have a personal relationship with God yet, you're, you're still trying to figure this thing out, you're still listening, you're checking it out, you're hearing what Jesus has to say, you're watching God's people, you're trying to figure this out, but you haven't come all the way to Christ yet, and one of your, maybe one of your real problems or one of your real hang-ups here is your idea of trusting God with your life. Because you know why? Because maybe you've trusted others, right? You've trusted other people. You've given your trust to others, and they've hurt you, right? They've burned you, and you think to yourself, is God worth trusting? Is he worth giving my life over to and actually surrendering to and following when I've done this before to other people and they have hurt me? The voice of God through Hebrews 3 is going to be to you today is trust him. Trust him. He is worth trusting. For those of you, you generally, you love Jesus. You have a relationship with God. You, you find, maybe today you find your faith. Maybe, it just, well, it's got a pulse. It's just kind of really weak. Um, you came to Jesus fired up. Maybe you're real excited about him. There was a time in your life you could think back. You're like, man, I just love Jesus so much. And I was so on fire for him. And now it's just kind of, it's just kind of there. Right? It just kind of exists. You feel a little blindsided maybe by the difficulty your commitment to Jesus has produced in your life. Or maybe you feel a little blindsided by the decisions that God has made with your life now that you've trusted your life to him. And you're not really sure why he's made these kind of decisions and why life is kind of going this direction. Right? You struggle. You, you're having some doubts about that. You're reeling in those doubts and insecurities. And yet the message is the same. It comes to you and me today. It is trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. He's worth trusting. And here's the hope this morning, right? Jesus is greater than all of those doubts. That's our seer. That's the whole book of Hebrews is about. He's greater than something today. He's greater than all of the doubts and insecurities and things that we, we're just unsure about with God and our relationship to him. And the cool thing about Hebrews, and we'll get to this when we get to Hebrews 11, is the, is the, is the thought that if, if somehow God could parade before us today, like Hebrews 11, all the saints that have gone before us, they would parade themselves onto this stage and fill the stage up, some of them with, honestly, with head in hand as they got their head cut off, right, for their faith in Jesus and all the struggles and all the things they had and all the doubts that they had. If you could parade all of them before us today, every single one of them would say to you and me, trust God, it is worth it. It is worth it. That's what they all would say. The people who are reading this letter of Hebrews for the first time, this, this generation of people, they remember they are second or maybe third generation Christians. They, they were not alive when Jesus was walking the earth, okay? Just like you and me. And they're reading this back in about 63 AD. is probably about the right date they were reading it. And there's two groups of people that were in that church. We've talked about them before. They were either what we call fence sitters, Right? They didn't totally come all the way to Jesus. Like some of you, maybe you're, just, you're kind of just still on the fence. You're not quite sure. You're not all in. You, you're kind of around the church. Maybe you're in the church, you know, but you're not, just not in relationship with God yet. 
Or there's other people who, have, who love Jesus, but you know what they're doing? They're kind of looking over their shoulder going, man, it sure does look better out there. <laughs> I mean, I remember life was hard when I didn't know Christ, but man, I feel like it's harder now than it was then. And these people here, there's a group of them that are in the church that are looking over their shoulder, looking at their past religious life. Their past life in Judaism is where they came out of, okay? And they're looking at that, and they're looking at all the family they had, and the jobs they had, and the relationships they had that they had now lost because of their commitment to Christ. And they're wondering, man, is it really worth it? Is it, is it really worth it sticking here? Because, I mean, they're, they're, I mean it's, this is what their commitment to Christ brought them, Right? It brought them marginalization, it brought them persecution, and abandonment. All right, that's, not a, that's not a great marketing plan. <laughs> hey, sign up and follow Jesus, and we'll give you first-rate poverty, unequaled abandonment, and unsurpassed persecution. Come on in, right? And they're like, I don't know if I really want this. But Jesus was worth all of that. At least they thought that at first. But now, in the midst of, of the suffering, in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the suffering and illnesses and all the things, they are looking over their shoulders and they're beginning to doubt. And you're going to see some parallels here because you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the parallels coming up. They're looking over their shoulders as it were back to Egypt. Oh, I mean, what was Egypt? It was great and wonderful, wasn't it? For Israel, it was wonderful. That is at least that's what they said in the wilderness. But the reality of it was, was what? They were in slavery. They were beaten down every day. They were, treating, they were treated like subhuman beings. And yet they're longing to go, I think that's better. I think it's better to be back in that than to be where we are now in following Christ. They believed they'd be better off if they dropped everything, maybe ran back as Israel did in the, wanted, wanted to do in the wilderness. But it was a great deception. For the temporal and physical safety, uh, would have been bought at the price of spiritual disaster. And so the writer is setting up warnings here in this passage. Warnings for both the fence-sitter, who hasn't come all the way to Christ, to come all the way in, okay? And also for the daydreamer, we'll call him, the Christian daydreamer, the one that's just kind of just thinking about how great it would be to do, be doing something else, to be somewhere else uh, away from God, who's tempted to benefit the, the, uh, the perceived benefits of religion in their past life. So the writer wants us to really understand the Christian life, it's a journey, okay? We're going to get this in chapter 4. It's a journey from weariness to rest, okay? And it's worth the trip. Their old life in religion, their old life of separation from God was not where rest was going to be found. There was no rest in Egypt. There was no rest. And being in this wilderness of life that currently may feel like that, we feel like God is not there at times, but we can trust him, right? We're in this wilderness of life. Sometimes there's a lot of dry spots. There's not a lot of water around, right? It just feels dry. It feels barren, but God is still there. Some years ago, uh, when uh, the, the C.S. Lewis series, The Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia series, when I got put into film, it wasn't very well done, by the way, but that's a, we'll talk about that if you want to talk about that later. But um, the books are so much better. Right? Anytime you watch a movie, you're like, the book is so much better than the, than the movie. Anyway, side point. But anyway, uh, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, when it came out, and I remember I was in L.A. at the time, and, um, and the articles were coming out in L.A. Times, which, you know, I mean, obviously going to criticize. It's L.A. Times, right? So they're going to criticize what's going on with the movie. And I remember reading all these articles about criticizing the character of Aslan. They were criticizing. This is interesting. They were criticizing because they said he never shows up. He's always absent. Everybody's always looking for him. And he always just shows up at the last minute. He swoops in, rescues the day, and then he leaves again. It's like, if that's like God, we don't want anything to do with him. He's just never there. He's just never there. The reality of the, of the books is, is that he was there. They just didn't see him. Remember Lucy? If you remember the books, like, Lucy did see him all the time. And, she, and the other kids asked, like, why, the, why didn't they see him? Because she said, because you didn't want to see him, right? You just didn't want to see him. 
But the reality is, is that God is there. He is present, even if you don't see him. And the common denominator here is that we all fight unbelief every single day. We fight to believe the fact that God is present. We fight to believe that God is good. We fight to believe that God is better than whatever is put out in front of us, right? That is the core issue, the core root issue of all of the struggles that we have. And so we do all share a common denominator with everyone in this room this morning. And it's not that you do this or do that or don't do this or don't do that. It's that you just don't believe Jesus. We just don't believe the gospel, and that's the problem, the problem with our culture. It was disbelief in the gospel that in this passage leads to strain, a hardness of heart, rebellion, and ultimately even to damnation. And this is exactly what happened to the people of Israel in the wilderness, and the writer's pleading with this church that it won't happen again. Know that your greatest battle, guys, your greatest battle is going to be faith. There's a reason why Paul calls it in 2 Timothy, what's he call it? A fight of faith. There's a reason he calls it a fight. <laughs> it's a battle every single day to cling on to and to hold on to and to believe that Jesus really is that good. He really is worth it. It's a lack of trust in God and his word that causes, leads us to want to long for the Egypt, as it were, to return to what appeared more comfortable and safe. It's unbelief that leads to rebellion and unbelief that leads to stealing and lusting and envy and pride. It's unbelief that leads to selfishness and injustice and no heart for missions and no heart for mercy for people. It always goes back to an issue of belief. Let me give you a test case, okay? Take lying, for example. The reason underneath the surface, the sin underneath the sin here, okay, the reason we lie is because at that moment, there is something we feel we simply must have, and so we lie. Many times it's because, many times we do this is because we are deeply fearful, what, of someone's approval of us. We're deeply fearful of that. This means that our line, we're, we're looking more to human approval than to Jesus as our source of worth and meaning and happiness. We fail to believe we're unconditionally accepted in Jesus, and he approves of us, and that's really what matters in life. That's the only way to change your habit of lying is to repent of your failure to believe the gospel, right? That you're not saved and accepted by pursuing man's approval, but through the grace of Jesus. It, it always goes back to that. That's always the underlying issue. I'm failing to believe at this moment that my relationship to Jesus is more valuable, more important than anything else. Take another one, for example. Let's take the issue of racism, for example. Partiality, racism. It was a big issue in the New Testament. First two books, James, Galatians, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, dealt with these issues because they were, they were real. Uh, Ephesians, one of the only circular letters written, kind of passed around in multiple churches, dealt with that issue in Ephesians 2 with the, the barrier between Jew and Gentile and the separation. Listen to this, Galatians 2.14. This is Paul talking. He says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, this is, he's, he, I said to Cephas, that's also his name is Peter. You may recognize Peter in the Bible. That's Peter he's talking to, Paul talking to Peter. I said to, to Peter or Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so he, here's, here, here's what's happening in this little, this little local church, okay? Paul confronts Peter in front of the church. Okay. Maybe you maybe never knew this happened. They had a throwdown in the middle of the church. Okay? It was Paul and Peter, and Paul called him out. And you say, what, what was going on? What happened in that situation? Well, basically, Peter went all junior high on, on his friends. Okay? He's there. It's like he, he's, he's like at the junior high lunch table. He's got his, his Thomas the Train lunch bag, you know, and he's maybe, and he's sitting there, 
And he's with all of his Jewish Christian, you know, uh, friends are there and everything. And then all of a sudden, the non-Jewish, the non, the, the um, sorry, the Jewish non-Christians come into town. He goes, oh, I, I want their approval. Like, I, I want to be with them. And so he leaves these, these Gentile Christians behind, okay? He leaves them behind. He goes, hangs out with the Jewish non-Christians and basically disassociates with them, right? They're second class. He picks up his lunch bag, goes to the other table. Paul comes into town and confronts Peter and goes, Peter, what are you doing? You, you can't do this. You, you're longing for the approval of them instead of, instead of staying here. And I love how Paul put it. He says, you're not in step with the truth of the gospel. He doesn't pull the card, the no racism card, and, say, and says, Peter, stop being racist. Stop being partial. Stop doing that, Peter. Shore it up. Get it right. Get back over here. Pick up your lunch bag and come back. He doesn't say that. He confronts Peter by saying, Peter, you're not believing the gospel. You're not believing that you're justified by faith in Christ. You're believing you're justified by the approval of others. And that's what he's going after. And that's he's going to the heart of the issue was the lack of belief in the gospel. He was more worried about what his fellow Jews thought of him and his reputation and what God thought of him in the gospel. So unbelief is always our problem, which for the unbeliever leads to a life of eternal separation from God. And for the believer, unbelief will lead you to pain and confusion and heartache. And what the writer refers to here is restlessness. This leads to this kind of restlessness of the soul. So what do we do? How do we fight to believe the gospel as Parkside Bible Church? What do we do practically in this wilderness of life where it's dry at times? And this is what the writer's going to tell us. He's going to give us four things. We need to check up. We need to build up, look up, and listen up. Okay, that's what we're going to look at today. Number one, check up. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is a call for examination, a spiritual heart checkup, as it were, Okay. The writer has just told them about the failure earlier in chapter 3, the failure of the Israelites in the wilderness. And the idea of the language is very strong. And the language is, watch out, right? Open your eyes. You can hear almost the writer of Hebrews yelling at them, like, don't let this happen to you. You need to check your heart for unbelief. John Blanchard tells a story about a massive car pileup that happened on a bridge out in London uh, during a di- it was a very dense fog. It was a major highway. Um, and he talked about how the, the, the fog, you couldn't see the accident. Hazard lights were on. The people who were coming onto the bridge couldn't see the hazard lights, couldn't see the accident up ahead. And every time um, the cars would just zoom into the fog and another car would be piled up, right? And just continue to, to hear these screeching of brakes and hearing all of the accident happening. A police officer, he says, says, showed up. He pulled his car over to the side of the road. He heard his flashers on. He's, uh, and, and cars just kept zooming by. They still weren't stopping. So he got up, opened the trunk of his car. He got out some cones. He said, the, he said the witnesses said the police officer was there with cones in his hand, tears flinging down his face. He was throwing them at the cars coming by, trying to get them to wake up. Like, you've got to stop. You don't want to go that way. And, that, and that's the image, really, of the writer of Hebrews. He's flinging cones at us. Tears streaming down his face, saying, please listen to what I'm about to tell you. Going down that road, it is dangerous, it is deadly, you don't want to go down that road. And so the writer of Hebrews is telling us that. And most of us are just not paying attention to him. It's a serious business, not just for you who don't know Jesus yet, but it's also for you who think you do, but maybe you don't. 
or for, and even for many of you who really do know Jesus. We need to, to check our hearts for unbelief. 2 Corinthians 13.5 will tell us to examine ourselves to see if we're of the faith. This is something we should do. We can dupe ourselves and fool ourselves and put on the mask and play, do the show and play church and do all that stuff and be just as far from God as anybody else in the world. It's not a matter of do we have any unbelief in our hearts, or rather how much is there and where is it at. Just like you should watch what you eat, and watch what you drink, watch, make sure you exercise, you should also check your soul. Check your soul. Many of you go to a doctor who checks all your vitals, right? How long has it been since you've checked your spiritual vitals? How long has it been since you've evaluated where you are in relationship with God? Because I know how it is. I, I know how it is personally. You just get into the motions, right? You just do what you're supposed to do, and you follow Jesus like you're supposed to follow Jesus, but you just kind of just get caught up in the motion of it, right? It's very easy to do. Today is a good opportunity to check, like, where am I? Is my heart in this, or am I just going through the motions? It's important. If we don't do a heart checkup, then even our confessions to God, you realize this, our, our confessions of sin to God will be very shallow and very incomplete because we won't really repent of sins. We'll just, we'll just repent of surface sins, right? We'll, we'll say, oh, God, I, I lied or lusted or hated or whatever it may be. Instead of saying, God, I, I lied to Mary today because I believed that her opinion of me was more important than your opinion of me in Christ. Right? We, we're not getting underneath the surface. We're just kind of just surfacing to even of our repentance. We need to check our hearts for unbelief daily by communion with God, listening for his voice through the word of God. And this is what the Bible is, is God's voice to your soul. And he's echoing again, trust me through every page. The writer will point this out in chapter 4. As a matter of fact, who in this passage we just read, who are we in danger of falling away from in this text? Are we in danger of falling away from the pastor? Are we, are we in danger of falling away from the church? Are we in danger of falling away from Christianity? What does it say? Lest you fall away from who? The living God. This is, this is personal, right? This is personal. When you don't do regular heart checkups in this wilderness of life, you know, you know what you start to do. You, you do exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness. You start to look over your shoulder. You start to envy that life over there. You start thinking, man, it'd be so much easier to have that. Life would be so much better if I did this or did that, right? And that's what starts to happen when our hearts start to stray. It leads, again, restlessness, anxiety, being uneasy. For you have not come all the way to Christ. The warning here is very strong. And it's the warning that basically it's this. It never, it will never get easier than today to give your life to Christ. It will not get easier tomorrow. It will not get easier the next day. Today, that's why you say today's day of salvation. If you, if you hear his voice, you're going to harden his heart. Today, you hear that language all the time in the Bible, especially in Hebrews. Today is that day. He is alive, and he is a living God, and he's here today. Your continual rejection of the gospel, your, your playing church games, is much more than rejecting historical, traditional Christianity. It's turning away from the living God. It's turning away from the one who offers to your restless soul rest. This happens in the church all the time. It's what Jesus said. Uh, we see this in the church. You saw it throughout the New Testament. Jesus talked about it a lot. He used the illustration of a seed. Seed along a path, a seed in the rocky soil, or seed among the thorns. It's those who, who profess to love Jesus, but they look over their shoulder and they walk away, thus revealing at the end of the day where they really were all along. They were faking it the whole time. 
Matter of fact, it was so pervasive that people were in following Christ. Even go read John 2. Jesus said he wouldn't even commit himself to, to these people who, had, who believed in him because he knew it was in them. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted a, you know, free food. They wanted miracles. Hey, you're going to heal me? Yeah, I'll follow you. What you want me to do? What hoops you want me to jump through? I'll, I'll take health. Yeah, go ahead. He didn't even commit himself to them. You'll find as you go on throughout the New Testament, it was so pervasive that in John, 1 John 2, he had to write to them to tell them because they, they're looking around going, man, people are leaving. People are walking away. What is happening? Are they losing their salvation? No, they're not losing their salvation. Never had it to begin with. 1 John two nineteen. they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Right? That's why they left. That's why they walked away. They were never in it to begin with. They were just in it to get the benefits. And when it cost them something, that's why Jesus says in, in Luke 14, if you're gonna, you've got to count the cost if you're going to follow Christ, right? There is a cost to that. Have you counted the cost of that? And when it came pricey for them, they're like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm dumping this whole Christianity thing, this Jesus thing. It doesn't work out for me. It's much easier over here. And proving that they were never in to begin with. Why were they running? Because their faith was tested and it crumbled. My friends, it's not until difficulty comes, until trials come, that you begin to see what your soul is made of. So until then, you begin to see, are you really holding on to Jesus or, or are you just holding on to a figment of your imagination, a God that you kind of made up in your head that's just going to, you know, butterflies and hills and flowers and it's just wonderful skipping through the fields and, oh, Jesus is great. He gives me big hugs and this is great, right? And then life gets really hard. You're like, where'd he go? And then you leave, okay? It was a figment of your imagination you made up. Unbelief in the gospel is rampant among us. The seed of it is in every soul. Take care Get some time alone with Jesus. Ask him to expose you to unbelief that is deep in your soul. For it is the reason that we struggle. It's the reason we worry like we do. It's the reason we're always so angry. It's the reason we're terrified to tell others about Jesus. Right? It's the reason we're so selfish. <clears throat> Number two, build up. <clears throat> 313. Uh, this is where the church community now comes in. Build up. Right? We, need, we need the church community. We need faith um, in the gospel. We need to be encouraged by that. Hey, I'm going to do something really, sorry for a second. Scott, can you hand me my water? I left it on the front there. I normally don't need it, but I'm going to continue to hack and cough here, and you're going to be like, oh, this is so annoying. I can catch. No? No, you're going to, no handoff? Okay, got it. Thank you. Isn't that how you do it in football? <clears throat> Thank you. Apologize. <clears throat> All right. Number two, build up. All right, this is, <clears throat> this is important to understand. Because loner, being a loner Christian, okay, being a loner Christian is where you're going to find unbelief everywhere in your life, okay? Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the author here gives us more insight into our soul by telling us that this unbelief is deceitful. We don't believe, and here's the thing, we don't believe that we don't believe, We're deceived by the fact that we think we believe and really don't. I mean, how crazy is that? And when we don't believe that we don't believe, our hearts get hard. And again, it's exactly what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. But there is hope. And here's here's the hope. It's not just in the voice of God through the scriptures, but it's in the voice of God through fellow believers, right? Speaking through them to our souls to encourage us and give us hope. And for the Israelites in the wilderness, they had some of those voices, didn't they? They had a few, 
Right? If you go back and read the story, if you're familiar with it, there were a few there who, had, who were the, kind of the voice of God through them speaking. They were hoping that people would follow along, right? Moses, I'm sorry, uh, Moses, yes, Caleb, Joshua, right? The, those guys were there, we know, probably a few others. Uh, we, have, we, have, we have today so many more voices in this church to speak life-giving words to you. But in order for them to speak into your life, here's the thing, you've got to be around, <laughs> If you're going to have people speak hope into your life and bring encouragement to your life, help you fight unbelief, you've got to be around them in order to hear that. And listen, if you have a voice today, if you're a follower of Christ and you have a voice, you better be using it to speak life into those around you. If God presents to you an opportunity for you to build up those around you, have the courage to do it, right? Have the courage to speak into their life. You say, what does this voice sound like? Well, it's, it's the voice of encouragement and counsel. Literally, the language here, when it says here in verse 13, to exhort one another, is literally the word counsel each other. We are literally supposed to counsel each other. Uh, we, we, don't, we won't make it through the wilderness of life without intense, continuous counseling. <laughs> and, and not necessarily from a professional. I'm not saying necessarily from a professional. I, I'm talking about everyone in the church is to counsel one another. This means uh, perseverance in the faith, guys, is a relational project. It's a relational project. We need to help each other through that. That's why you you get Ephesians 4.15. Paul says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We're speaking the truth in love to one another, speaking the gospel to one another. Ephesians 4.29, only let, let out of your mouth what is good for building up, as fits the occasion, it may give grace to those who hear, right? This is what we're supposed to do with our words. That we're supposed to build one another up, help one another along in our doubts. When was the last time you spoke life-giving words? Words that build up and not tear down to someone else in this room. Think about that for a second. I'll just let that linger for a moment. When's the last time you spoke life-giving words to someone in this room? Gave them hope. Gave them encouragement. It, and it doesn't have to be verbal, right? We live in a technology where you can, you can send a text or an email or you can still write letters and you can do all that. You can encourage one another with that, right? When's the last time you did that? I, I ch- take some time this week to encourage somebody in this building. Take some time to do it. If it's verbally in front of them, if it's writing a letter, if it's shooting an email, a quick text. I mean, you can do just text an emoji, right? I mean, you can do anything that would just, technology-wise, it's like that, right? You don't even have to type words now. You just push a face. It's awesome. So you say, you say well, so what does this counseling look like? Well, I don't, you say, I don't have any degrees in this stuff. I don't know how to counsel people. I don't know what to say. It's really simple. Here it is. It's got two forms to it. And it's what we're going to find out. It has two forms. It has truth in it and it has tears. Truth and tears. Okay? And you can't survive with having both of these forms of counseling. You need someone to cry with you. You need someone to speak truth to you. Okay? You need both of those. Think about Jesus' ministry. What was Jesus' ministry? What was his counseling like? Truth and tears. Let me give you one example. In John, the story of Lazarus who dies, okay? He shows up on the scene. He talks to Martha first. And remember, she's a little bit out of, she's, she's kind of losing it a little bit. She's upset that Jesus didn't come in time. And what does Jesus do? He confronts her with truth. He says, what? I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me, right? So he's, he's kind of confronting. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Sorry, it was John 14, John 10. I am the, I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. I, I got this kind of thing. It was truth, but he goes and sees Mary. What does he do? He gets to the tomb. The text says he, he cries. He has the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept, right? He wept. And the word for weeping is the, to convulse, shaking. You ever cried so hard your whole body shakes? That's what Jesus was doing. 
He was sharing, empathizing in their emotions and their struggle, and at the same time speaking truth, right? That, that is truth and tears, truth and tears. That's the kind of counsel that we need. We need both of those. That's why in John 1.14, said, said of Jesus, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory to the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can call it grace, I call it tears. Grace and truth. Now, why every day? Why does the writer say we need to do this every single day? Isn't that a bit much? Is that, that's too much counseling, right? <laughs> do we really need to be counseled every single day? And the answer is yes, we do. We need hope every day. We need encouragement for one another every day, right? Why? Because we're a bunch of lie-believing people. We just are. We just believe lies all day long. We just believe lies, and we need to be, we need to be spoken truth into. Um, we're easily deceived, as the writer talks about here. We don't believe that we don't believe. We need each other. And this is reason 4,924, something like that, why you, need the ch- why you need the church, why you need the community, right, in the Bible. It's just all over the place. You need the community of the church. Why God built it. You say, why did God do this? Why, I mean, why can't we just follow Jesus and on our own? Because you need each other, right? You need your brothers and sisters in Christ. A Sunday morning sermon fix isn't going to do it, okay? It isn't sufficient to cover everything where you need counsel from each other throughout the week. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a, he was a pastor during, um, during Hitler's reign, okay, over in Germany. He was one of the few that didn't cave in to Hitler, and he actually died for it as a martyr. He said this. He said, God has put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without bellying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. He said he's struggling. He needs someone here who's not struggling to help here and just kind of just keep helping one another. You get to Hebrews 12. He's going to talk about there's going to be runners and some are going to be limping and some are going to be hurting and some are going to be running well and you're going to put your arm around them and you're going to bring them to the finish line, right? We're helping one another. We're encouraging one another. Number three, look up. We need to do a spiritual heart checkup, right? We talked about that. Hear from the voice of Jesus in the Word. We need to encourage one another, hear the voice of God through, the, through our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need, but we also need to daily look up ourselves at the righteousness of Christ that we have. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The idea to share is to be joined together. It's like the it's word used for business associates. Matter of fact, it's used in Luke 5 to talk about uh, sharers and Peter's, uh, James and John being partners in Peter's fishing business, right? They were partners together. So we have, we have come to share in Christ. We've joined in him. And what in the world does that mean? It's the same thing Paul talks about a lot. Read Ephesians in those passages, right? He talks about this little simple phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in, Christ, in him, in Christ. Theologically, it means union with Jesus. Practically, this means that all that he is and all that he accomplishes, we get to share in. Now, that doesn't mean we become like little gods walking around. Okay, I'm not talking about that. But it does mean that we share in Jesus' righteousness, for example. Because he's righteous, we're righteous. Because he's holy, now God treats us as holy. And because Jesus raised from the dead, now therefore we will be raised from the dead. Because Jesus exalted the right hand of God, therefore we will be exalted. Right? This is, we're all wrapped up 
in Jesus. This is the sword for fighting unbelief, looking up to Jesus, our righteousness at God's right hand. We always need, we always need another look at the gospel, right? I've said this so many times. The gospel is not the front porch on the Christian life, right? You get in. All right, I got into the house. Okay, now what do I need to do? It is the house, okay, <laughs> every single day. You're not getting saved over and over and over again, okay? There is justification by faith alone in one point time period, right? It happens. You become justified by faith, you become a relationship with God. But that gospel message, that what Jesus has done for you is something we have to think on every single day. That's why we do communion every Sunday, to kind of keep that rhythm going, to keep that thought in our head, because that is the house of Christianity. That is all of it. We need to because we're so prone to, to believe, again, bad news. You know, like significance is found in what people think of you, or identity is found in your accomplishments, or life is found in your relationship with another person. That, that's all restlessness, guys. All that stuff is. It's not gospel. It's bad news. Jesus in the gospel was rest in good news. We need to look up. I've shared this, this, uh, this story many times. I'm going to read it again because I just love how he puts it. John Bunyan, he's the writer of the Pilgrim's Progress. You may recognize it's like the second most published book outside the Bible in history, right? His, uh, his kind of testimony, how he came to faith in Christ. I love how it kind of dawned on him. He said, one day, as I was passing in the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with my eyes, eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, listen to this now, wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him, right? His, it was at his right hand. I, I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor was it my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see, do you hear that? I mean, it didn't, it didn't matter where I was, what I was doing, it never changed my status with God. And that truth he says here, look, now my, my chains fell off my legs indeed. I was loose from my afflictions and irons. My temptations fled away. It, you see, that even solved, it even helped him conquer temptation was that truth. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. This is why we need the rhythms of your life to be daily communion with God through reading of Scripture and prayer. And not just reading, not just reading the Bible to check off the list, but like, I always say it like this until our, you know, it's like when you go to the Bible, it's like, you ever remember the Where's Waldo books? It's like going to the Bible going, where's Jesus? It's kind of basically the same idea, okay? Instead of looking for Waldo, you're looking for Jesus, okay? You're looking through the Scriptures going, how does this point to the person and work of Jesus? How does, this, how does this point me to my relationship with God? And you're not just reading for a moral, you know, story to kind of, oh, oh, that was a good moral story. Maybe I'll implement what they did. Always wanting to point yourself to the person of Jesus. Always trying to get that. That's, why we, that's what we do every Sunday, right? I'm basically playing where's Jesus here every Sunday. We're just trying to find him in the Scriptures. How does this point to him? How does this point us to him? Always doing that every single day. Realize that many in this church in Hebrews uh, were starting to, to stop coming to Sunday. They were, starting to, they were starting to come, stop gathering together. And it wasn't because they were lazy or they were sick or they were busy or whatever. They were not coming. They were not identifying with the body of Christ because it meant publicly identifying cost them something. It made life harder for them at that time. And that's why the writer said in Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 10, 25, not neglected to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, there it is again, 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? We need to constantly be hearing the gospel. We constantly need to be reiterating it to ourselves. We constantly need to hear it from one another. We do need to hear it from this pulpit on Sunday. We need to hear about the person work of Jesus, right? If I ever cease to get up here and stop talking about the person work of Jesus, you can drag me from this pulpit, okay? This is what we do. We always go back to the person and work of Christ because that's what it's about. It's about him. We're here to worship him, not about us, not about me, not about what I do or what you do or what we haven't done or what we don't we don't do. It's all about him. And that is what helps us fight unbelief. Okay? Number four. Lastly, listen up. Rav Hebrews is very urgent here. He's already, as we said, thrown cones at us, right, to do some self-evaluation. He's instructed us to, to counsel one another every single day, not just on Sundays, but all throughout the week. He told us to get our heads out of the sand in the wilderness. Look up. See Jesus as, as our righteousness, right? Dig into the word. Look, at, look for the person work of Jesus. And now he's going to tell us to respond right now. Not, not tomorrow, not later, but now, right? To not waste any time because it never, I said this earlier, it never gets easier than right now to turn to Christ. It never gets easier than right now to listen up and run to him with your doubting heart. It never gets easier now than now to forsake sin. So verse 15, he says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. And he goes on to explain what that is. You're like, what's the rebellion? For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, right? And whom did he not swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So here's the here's scary part in all of this. Did the people in the wilderness, in the Old Testament, in the Exodus, did the people in the wilderness hear Moses? Did they hear him? Yeah, they did hear him. But they didn't hear him. You, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> they heard him, but they didn't hear him. Right? They didn't believe. They heard the things he said, but they didn't believe the good news. They didn't believe... The, the gospel Moses was sharing with them, that rest was in Jesus, that rest was coming. Instead, they kept looking over their shoulders, they kept looking back, crying to go back to, to slavery in Egypt, right? They, they, they believed that rest was really back in Egypt, that rest was in slavery. You hear how ridiculous that sounds? It sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds crazy to think, oh yeah, I want to go back to slavery. That totally, that totally is rest for me. It sounds ridiculous, but that's what, that's what we're doing in unbelief all the time. We're doubting the freedom and rest all Jesus offers and considering going back to slavery, which you view as rest, and it's not. Look at verse 19. So see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Why does the writer end there? It kind of seems a little depressing, right? Why does he end like that? He's simply telling them a true story embedded not just in history, but in their minds because they knew this story all too well. They knew it. You can go throughout the Old Testament. This story is repeated over and over and over. The wilderness wanderings. It's all over the place. And here's, here's what's happening. Experientially, they're in the church like you are right now. They're sitting there, and they're looking across the aisle, and they see people they knew that used to be there that have walked away from the faith altogether. They just walked away. And they're looking across, and they're going like, what, are we going to do the same thing? Are we all going to walk away? Like, what's going to happen? And so the, the, the author is basically telling, the writer wanted them to, to, to see these people who had walked away from the faith. He wanted to see them and put the story parallel, lay it on top of this one. He said, I want you to look across the aisle. I want you to see the person who left, who, doesn't, who, who denied the faith. I want you to see them as a dead body in the wilderness. The same people. That's what he's talking about. 
It's like those old anti-drug commercials back in the 80s. I'll date myself a little bit here. Remember those? This is, this is an egg. You know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. You know, it's fried. Any questions? This writer basically is saying, um, the, you see these people who left? You see people who, who left and walked away from faith? You see people who are dead in the wilderness? Any questions? That's what they're like. That's exactly what's going on. He's trying to give that story to them, right? The author is saying, this is your life in Jesus. This is your life. If you turn away from Jesus and you walk away, this looks like a dead body in the wilderness. Like I said earlier, the reason some people in our culture and some people in the church today will fail to enter heaven, will fail to enter rest, is not because of the volume of their sins or the intensity of their sins. Listen carefully now. It's not because of the volume of their sins or the intensity of their sins. It's because of unbelief. It's because of unbelief. They reject the Savior. Hell is occupied by what the Bible calls unbelievers. Unbelievers. They choose not to believe. You're saying that this is why we talk about hell is not necessarily people there and they just want to get out, you know, and God's kicking them back into the firebowl and saying, stay out, you know, you can't get out of there. No, they, they are there because that's where they want to be. They wanted life apart from Jesus, and that's simply what hell is. It's life apart from Jesus. They got the horrible freedom they always wanted. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, hell emerges as the greatest monument to human freedom. That's a very sobering thought. It's the greatest monument to human freedom. You don't want God? You don't want him? Okay, there's a place that you can freely have apart from him, and it's called hell. It's the greatest monument to human freedom. And many of you are like, but Chris, I, I, I really do love Jesus, but I find, I find so many doubts and so many struggles that I have. I, I find the, the unbelief permeates my life, and I just don't trust God like I should. What do I do? And I would tell you that God is big enough and strong enough to hold all those doubts, all those questions that you may have. He can hold all of that. There's nothing you can't throw on him that he can't hold. Trusting God is hard work. Again, Paul called it a fight of faith for a reason. Taking God at his word is going to be tough, but we have a Savior who has done it for us, right? He has carried that load for us. Doesn't that lighten the load? Doesn't that give us freedom to trust him more? It's, it's not that now because you're in Christ, God is not going to strike you down for your doubts. Some of you may believe as a Christian that I can't tell God my doubts because, I mean, he, he may kick me out, you know, or he's not going to like this or whatever. No, he wants to hear. God longs for what lies in the depths of the soul. Whatever is there, whatever doubts are there, whatever questions are there, he wants what's there. He already knows it's there anyway. It's not going to strike you down for weak faith. You just have to be willing to trust him. I love the statement in Mark 9, 24, when the father, a father there of a child, he said immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a great statement. That's a great statement to go for God. God, I believe you. Please help my unbelief. I'm struggling. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn, watched uh, cancer slowly and painfully kill his wife over a period of many months. In recounting those days, John Newton said this. He said, quote, I believe it was about two or three months before her death when I was walking up and down the room offering disjointed prayers from a heart torn with distress that a thought suddenly struck me with, with unusual force to this effect. The promises of God must be true. Surely the Lord will help me if I'm willing to be helped. I instantly said aloud, Lord, I am helpless indeed in myself, and I, but I hope I am willing without reserve that you should help me. I hope I am. You hear that? He, even, he even acknowledges his, maybe his, his doubt of believing that he doubts, right? He's like, I, I hope I'm willing. I want to believe. Please help me. It was just an honest, transparent prayer, and that's what God wants. Listen, at the end of the day, it's not about how strong your faith is. It's about how strong your Savior is. 
in the book, um, Tim Keller is, a, is an author, a pastor in New York City, and he uh, had a book, Reason for God, I put it in your bulletin this week, and there's a great quote from that book I just want to read to you. He said, imagine, great illustration, imagine you're on a high cliff, you lose your footing, you begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope, and it's more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? He says, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. It's okay. Weak faith, you got a strong branch, weak faith's okay, right? Just hold on to the strong branch, even if it's your pinky finger, right? You just hold on to that. God is big enough to hold all of it. Believer and unbeliever alike, listen, you are, you are falling, you're reaching for things that, that won't save you. Jesus is the branch that will support you while nothing else will. As we go to communion, this is what we want to think about. We want to to reflect on our relationship toward God, be honest with him about our doubts and our struggles, place them before him, okay? As we do this, now we have quiet time, and maybe if you're new for us, it may be a little awkward for you. It's okay. There is a point of being all quiet because our life is so busy, and I talk a lot too, and it's like, take a break, Chris, right? It's all right. So we take communion. We take a time of quiet for you to draw a circle around yourself, right, and just talk to God on your own, Okay? Maybe, you've, maybe you haven't talked to God in a while. Maybe it's been a week. Maybe it's, maybe it's been a month. Maybe it's been a year. Maybe you've never talked to God. I want you to know that right now, he's available to hear you. You don't need to go through some priest. You don't need to go through me. You don't go through anybody else in this room. You can go directly to God yourself. And you can place whatever it is, whatever doubts and struggles you have on your heart. If you don't know him, you can turn to him today. There'll be people in the front to be praying for you. This, they're there to help bear the burdens. If you're, if you're a believer today and, you, and you're just struggling with doubt and struggling with it, come to, let them help bear that burden with you, right? Let them do what the writer told us to do. Counsel one another, encourage one another, right? Let them do. That's what they're here for. You're not a weirdo if you come up front and get prayed for, okay? I just want to let you know that. Some of you still have the stigma of like, well, if I go up front, I must really be bad, right? No, please come up front, have them pray for you. That's what they're here for, Okay. We have bread and we have juice, the tables, front and back. And, uh, and you can go back there. It's, it's, the, we take communion as representing the body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. There's nothing magical about that. We just do it as a way to remember tangibly the death of Jesus and his soon return. And we give our offerings as a response. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Um, God, we admit that um, not often in the church do you talk about doubt being okay. And yet, God, it, it is. We, we like to think that we've got it all together. We like to maybe show to other people like we've got it all together. But the reality is deep inside we're hurting. Deep inside we have our doubts. We have a lot of questions that are left unanswered. And, Lord, so often in the church we just hide those and act like we just don't want to share them. And I pray, God, today would be a day that starts a cultural shift in our church that, God, we begin to be honest about our struggles be transparent with our, with our doubts. Allow one another to bear the burdens of, one, of each other. God, I pray that, uh, God, you would grow us close to one another and close to you in that process. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are that strong branch. 
that God, is, uh, as much as we may doubt, you'll hold us. God, if we reach out and hold on, you will. And, um, and God, I pray for those here who do not, not know you, that God, they would truly give their heart and life over to you today, enter into relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.